Say It Loud Network and Mean Old Line Media presents the history of being Black. Welcome to another episode of the history of being Black. I am your host, Eunice Elliott, and each episode I am so fortunate and blessed to get to talk to. Really, if they are my friends, they are my friends. If they were not my friends before this episode, they are my friends. So I get to talk to my friends about being Black, among other things, but also really provocative conversations with some of the uh, smartest folks I know. Today I'm joined by, I like to call her my bougie smart friend, uh, Michelle Clement. Welcome to the program, Michelle. Thank you, ma'am. I appreciate the invite. Now, beyond being one of my bougier friends, uh, you are a very uh, distinguished, um, let's see, educator, lawyer. What what, what all would you say if you had to say who you are, what you do? You're Yale University educated, Columbia Law School, a master's from University of Florida. I mean, I can go through your bio, but how do you describe who you are and what you do? In short short order, I'm an attorney, uh, former HR executive. Uh, I'm currently in addition to those things, I'm a, I own my own HR consultancy with this emphasis on um, preparing athletes for the days that they're no longer athletes. And towards that end, from an age, educational standpoint, I also have a master's in sport management and am an, uh, a certified athlete development specialist. So I'm a bunch of things, uh, just depending on the moment and, and, and with whom I'm speaking. So, And one of the things I do want to add in that won't necessarily be the focus of our conversation today, you also are, are the daughter and a part of American history. Tell the audience who you're dad is as well. Sure. Well, th- thank you for saying that. My father is a retired federal judge, UW Clemen. He is, he is or was the first black federal judge in Alabama since Reconstruction. He was nominated by President Jimmy Carter in 1979 and was uh, confirmed by the, the Senate Judiciary in uh, 1980 and served on the, the bench um, 29 years. And prior to that, he uh, practiced civil rights law here in Alabama and was one of two first first black state senator since Reconstruction, serving from 74 until his appointment to the court in 80. So she ain't no small stuff. You know, I, I know people. I just want y'all to know I know people. Both uh, Michelle's parents are lovely people. I'm fortunate to call them uh, friends of the family and family of friends. Absolutely. Um, but being a child of a historical figure in American history, Alabama history, and having a degree, earning a degree in history, what is your fascination? I mean, obviously, this is the history of being black. A lot of what we talk about is predated history, but also what we're going through now. What what piqued your interest and when was that interest peaked in pursuing a degree in history and, and telling these stories? Yeah, that, that, thank you for asking that. It's a great question. I, I was influenced heavily by my father in that way. He was a, a history major at Miles College. Okay. Uh, and prior to that, I think growing up, he had just an interest in history as well. So I've kind of got it honestly and genetically. Uh, I am, um, and I knew I was going to be a history major from the jump. Like it, as soon as college became, I came close to college age, I never doubted or vacillated on history being um, my path academically. Um, and as an adult, what I'm fascinated by and have come to even uh, more greatly appreciate is how there's not very much going on now that you can't go back and point to a very similar historical reference. Mm, okay. And uh, so that that is that is kind of the, the frame that I teach history. I teach a course on the history of uh, 
um, the Black American experience in sport at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, for those who are familiar uh, who, uh, with it. And I framed that course in that way. I know we'll, uh, I'll probably have some opportunity to talk about that in a bit, but I, I framed that course in that way very much around the current events in sports that impact or involve African Americans. There's almost another, there's almost always a previous flashpoint that if it's not on all fours with it, there are some nuggets you can draw from the past historical event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and I apply that framework to, uh, most salient for me as a, as a, as an amateur historian. Like I am fascinated by in current times how this, this conversation around voting rights mm-hmm. is, is very much a cyclical one. Oh, definitely. And, right. Definitely. And is, is very much, uh, rounded in what happened in this country from the time the first slave ships embarked here in 1619 through really the Plessy versus uh, Ferguson decision in 1896. And um, I bring, you know, my lens, I look at it not only through the history the history of it, but the, the different types of history, like what happened, what was happening politically, um, the legal analysis, how the Constitution is developing in this time frame. So the history major and the law degree kind of afford me this opportunity kind of to, to explore the intersection of those things, especially when it comes to things like voting. Mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you, as since you grew up as a, a child of someone who was a history buff and you have a love of history yourself in recent uh this last few months or last year a lot of people are learning american history truthful somewhat more truthful american history for the first time so i'm assuming that because of how you grew up and assuming uh, how you learned history were you ever at any point in school feeling like hey my teachers are leaving a whole lot out like hey y'all meet me on the playground let me tell you what i actually know about american (laughs) history or how how was that for you being a, a a buff of history, but knowing that everything's not always included or truthfully told. Yeah, I, I absolutely experienced history in the way that you described, like being in class and having this very, like, if you want to call it like this, this Black History Month approach to history, that mm-hmm. is the same things you cover in every class. Um, and I had the benefit, particularly with regard to some elements of civil rights history in Alabama, I had the the, the benefit of knowing the players or mm-hmm. my father knows the players players or knew the players. And so being able to get fuller context for the stories and learning where the, the, those inconsistencies might have existed uh, did, you know, did afford me that unique per- perspective. But, you know, at the time, I didn't find myself like challenging. Like I knew it was wrong. Some of the stuff was inaccurate, but I never, I didn't have the voice at the time to like challenge it. Whereas now I would be like, well, you know, that's not quite, that's not quite. Well, for example, if I may <laughs> provide an example hey, well, of how I might. Did you find that, did you find that frustrating? as a student, you know, to you know, a lot of what we had to do to pass was to get history wrong. You know, I say most of the people who are most ignorant about history got A's in American history in American public education. So they're like, how do I not know all of this so-called basic stuff that they're learning now when I got an A in history? Right, right. It certainly feels like the history as we were required to know it was somewhat like performative. If you provided the answer that uh, was expected then that was correct, but it didn't necessarily Necessarily have to be historically correct, right? Right. It's like the <laughs> the Indians were, and you fill in the blank. Friends. <laughs> you're like, wait a minute now. Did I get an A on that test? I don't think that's how that works. 
work. And that's what's frustrating to me and not, I'm nowhere near a, considered a history buff, but I have an appreciation for the stories that we were never told as a storyteller. And so when this, within this last year, when a lot of our fairer skinned brothers and sisters started having these awakenings and starting to realize that they've been lied to, um, we started seeing a lot of white tears and white guilt and, you know, all these different things. And so how do you take that or how do you support those moments when, do you take it on as a, a role of, okay, let me console them with truth? Or do you just say, hey, figure it out, get it on your own, work it out one day? Well, it kind of depends on the mood I'm in that particular day. I have found that the consolation with truth or what I intend to be experienced for someone, at, I'm sharing something in the spirit of, of the, them kind of reconciling themselves to the truth. Oftentimes the truth doesn't, they don't necessarily want to reconcile themselves to the truth. Right. And so tension gets created because um, it's the truth. It is what it is. It's historical, uh, but there's uh, an uncomfortableness that's created that makes the truth something that folks want. To, some folks want to continue avoiding. And some days I do feel like educating, but those days are decreasing in number, and I'm more finding myself like not wanting to be like I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of feeling like I have to carry this burden uh, of educating people around these things. I got particularly like worked up in uh, this time. Well, a little bit later than this time last year, but like June of last year when Juneteenth became mm, a thing. Oh, that 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 drove me crazy. If I may be honest with you, well, why? I mean, why as, as, you? as a as a historian, it drove me crazy because um, the description of of what Juneteenth was and wasn't was so ahistorical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but to understand Juneteenth, you have to understand these like critical events that that informed Juneteenth. Like, you cannot talk about Juneteenth without talking about the Emancipation Proclamation because what Juneteenth effectively is is the the, the, the delayed communication of the Emancipation Proclamation, you know, that delay from January 1, 1863 through Juneteenth, 1865. It was just a, not just, but it was a two and a half year delay in communicating that proclamation to uh, slaves who were in Texas and more distance from the action, if you will. But the Emancipation Proclamation did not free the slaves. Right. Hard stop. And uh, it did not free so explain the slaves. Explain to people who heard of Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and Lincoln freed the slaves. Give us the accurate story right. there. Well, right. Um, the accurate the accurate description of what the Emancipation Proclamation did was that it declared that uh, slaves in enslaved states were free if they uh, escaped to Union territory or if uh, in the course of the war, the Union took over the town that they were in and that, that town then became a part of the Union again. Mm-hmm. That's what the Emancipation Proclamation did, but it did not unilaterally declare the slaves free. And uh, we can we can debate how much of it was grounded in Abraham Lincoln's moral inclinations, mm-hmm. uh, his political bodies, right? Free. Political inclinations, and even some would argue his uh, like. Mm-hmm international diplomacy considerations. Uh, he needed Europeans to be symp- sympathetic to the Union and mm-hmm. uh, being uh, um, abolitionist in, in um, philosophy would be more would have been more likely to have gotten the Europeans to assist the Union in our in the effort to win the we war. We call it abolitionist-esque. 
esque, uh, and you know, and it, we we give a lot of you know, you know, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. He was a champion of black people. That may be a bridge too far if you really right. like dig into the history of, a bit. Abraham Lincoln was against slavery, from what I've read, based on kind of these moral grounds. But he, that didn't necessarily translate to him actually believing in equal rights for blacks. Right. He didn't think blacks and whites should live it, together or could live together. Or, or, black should go back to go have their own thing, right? Or and um and it, it's not clear that until maybe um in the latter years of the war and right before his death, it's not clear that he was actually in favor of right blacks having the right to vote. Right. Um so that's the t- and and you you um you add all that context to this conversation around Juneteenth. And so Juneteenth is now branded in this country as the day all the slaves were the day <laughs> the slaves were right. freed. No, it and, was the day it was oh y'all ain't here? No, no <laughs> it was the day the, the slaves in Texas belatedly learned. Belatedly the owners learned. knew. They just, the owners knew not to pass along that information right. because then they would no longer have free slave labor, even though the Emancipation Proclamation basically, um, when we say free the slaves, and that's the, the dumbing down of what actually happened is because they needed more bodies for the union's efforts and blah, blah all this that's negotiating. Right. Need, right? And you bring up such a, such a, um, if there's any word that best applies how black, the, what the black experience is, as an entity in this country is that we are the ent- entity over which things are negotiated. Mm-hmm. If you look at even back to the Constitutional Convention and like the, the, the four or five compromises that come out of that, well, about, almost all of those in some way are about Black folk. Mm-hmm. How much how much voting power, how much power we have as citizens, three-fifths compromise, right? right. Uh, the Electoral College and what it, what it was meant to do as far as strengthening or diluting a vote. Um, the compromise on the importation of slaves. I mean, there was a there was a there was a compromise around when slave slavery would be no longer be allowed in this country, and that was negotiated. So right. we've always been kind of the bargaining chip for which these for, negotiations for most occur. Of the commerce, yeah, most of the commerce, um, uh, everything that has to do with America, black folks were involved in some way, and so that's why it's so ironic that black people are not involved in history outside of February and George Washington Carver and Booker T. Washington. <laughs> right, <laughs> and it's like, well, how are you telling? the story of America if Black people are not involved in these stories outside of being slaves. Right, right. It's an incomplete, it's an incomplete history and, and, and thus kind of inaccurate because you can't, if you're telling these stories with not including, without including the Black experience in them. Yeah, you're not even telling half the story. You're not really. even telling half the story, really. Exactly. So when you talk about voting, voting rights and obviously that's a hot topic in the news today, whether we're talking about voter fraud or voter, voter suppression, and you talk about um, you know, in the 1800s when black folks were given the right to vote, um, there were so many asterisks, hashtags, annotations, maybe, <laughs> but not really. But if you did this, you know, talk to us about all of the hoops and, and things that black folks, black men had to jump through back in 1860 when they were, quote unquote, given the right to vote. And then how that then factors into what's going on today. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the suppressive tactics that were used <laughs> to uh, discourage th- those few blacks who did have the right to vote <clears throat> in terms of having to demonstrate like literacy mm-hmm. um, and in terms of uh, were there poll taxes, poll taxes, how many jelly beans, uh, how, how many, jelly- jelly- can you guess the number of jelly beans in the cho- j- Did jar? your grandfather own property? property. Can you off um, can you provide uh, an interpretation of the Bill of Rights of the right. Constitution? You know? So all these hurdles that were put in front of blacks to establish their their eligibility to vote that were uh, that were not hurdles for white people. They just got to go down to the Board of Regist- 
stars and, and do their thing. But we always had hurdles to jump, you know, all hurdles that were almost always, um, not almost, well, almost always impossible to, yeah. like, I mean, intentionally they were, they were impossible. to get them right, right. So and, even and, today, right? Still yeah. making up stuff to make it harder. It's it's still making up stuff uh, to make it harder. Um, what What is interesting is a, what what you might say is a difference between then and now is that uh, the, 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 the company or the corporate awareness around voting rights and where companies now stand on those things. Mm-hmm. Then a, a black person who wanted to vote had, um, and there were, there were less formal employment structures back then too. So I'm, you know, some of this is in, informal what I'm talking about, but if uh, you had a black, a black woman trying to vote, which kind of a tough thing since we didn't right. get it with suffrage, but uh, black women who worked, whether they were trying to vote or not, if their husbands were trying to vote, uh, the woman could use, lose her job as a domestic. So you had this like economic implication for trying to vote as well. Well, what we're seeing today, particularly with regard to the um, the bill in Georgia, uh, is that companies are taking a little bit of a different stance when it comes to uh, speaking out against voter suppression, which historically has not happened. Right. So why do you think it's happening now? Well, I think there's I think there are two kind of driving factors, uh, economics and uh, companies wanting to be ultimately on the right side of history in a way that they might not have been as interested in uh, free George Floyd. Right. You know, I think I think if we're having this conversation without absent the con the, the unfortunate and sad and tragic circumstances of George Floyd, I'm not sh- I'm not sure where the companies that are now talking about um, boycotting uh, doing business in Georgia. I'm not sure that they are doing those things absent George Floyd. And the, and that's the thing what's interesting about the murder of George Floyd that obviously he's not the first or the last uh, black person to be murdered by police. But I think the combination of not having any distractions for that eight minutes and 46 seconds that folks who normally would not have watched, I've never seen the video, but folks who normally would not have watched because of the pandemic, because no sporting events, you can't go to movies. There, there were no distractions right. from that video for a lot of folks who d- never felt like it would affect them before. Right. And it, it caused this consciousness of just straight humanity for folks that had never really happened before with all the other murders um, that caused this consciousness, whether it's corporate responsibility or, like you said, being it's the end thing to do is to try not to be as racist. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so how much is that is uh, sustainable? How much is that is performative? How much of that is actually causing any shift or change in the actual world? Because for everything like uh, Pete Buttigieg, I saw just was talking about how much racism is built into the highways. Well, when you have people that say, oh, black folks make everything about race, it's like everything has been about race. Has (laughs) been about race. I mean, that's 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 kind of that's the gotcha gotcha. Like, yes. Everything is about race, and the fact that you don't know that is because it's about race, and it's been suppressed. That it's been that all this subterfuge is mm-hmm. really a cover for racism. But it never affected them negatively. They never had to know. They never, they never had, had to, to know. know. Yeah, yeah. No, you're you're <laughs> you're right. So I, like, I, you watch it. It's like so. So then, what about next year? So what about in three years? What about in five years? What are we talking about? What, what are we talking about? And so, with regard to the companies that decided to give employees. Juneteenth off as a paid holiday. If I may come back to that, uh-huh. I think I would have like did those same companies give their employees uh, election day off as a paid holiday so they could go vote. Right. Like that—that's the question I have. And you know, now I have it for those for those uh, for those companies.
companies that are that have decided they're going to protest and have done so or are planning on it. Okay, so how far does this really extend? Does it extend to your allowing your employees to to, to vote in through the means that's most convenient for them, which may be having the day off to do it? Right. So I don't it's know. It's a national holiday anyway. Uh, to to yeah. be able to vote to exercise that. And so as a as a specialist in labor law, what is it that you see when these companies are touting their corporate responsibility and they hire that one black person as a diversity and inclusion officer. Uh, and then what? <laughs> then what happens? Well, I mean, we've seen, you know, I've observed the explosion of the DEI. Uh, oh, yes, diversity, function. equity, and inclusion. Yes, yes. no, because we're, we're about being equitable now. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen an explosion of that since George Floyd died, just observing it, you know, outsider looking in. And um, I have some partic- particular perspectives around DEI and who should drive it. Like, but what you what you usually see is a black male, a black woman or black man running the DEI program. But DEI will not work unless and until senior le- level white executives decide to change how they live fundamentally. Like be deliberate about getting to know black people. People do business with, employ, <laughs> give business to, invite over to the house, people they know and they like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some of the tough conversations have to be around how much are those C-suite executives getting out of their comfort zone and um, getting to know people who don't look like them. Because when your when your middle level employees and maybe if your DEI is a part of your you know that function falls under directly under you in the C-suite, when they see that's a priority for you, that'll shift their energy. But they're only as um, emboldened or empowered um, as they're allowed to be, and the likelihood of them being empowered is influenced by how much the CEO values it. And mm-hmm. I think that value comes from personally experiencing people of color, more people of color than they historically have. So are they willing to do that level of work to um, help their companies grow and change in that way? I don't black black folks should not have to carry the DEI burden in their companies. Right. Well, they are the DEI burden of their companies <laughs> in most situations. But let me I ask you this. So I feel like, you know, white folks are in the in part of the privilege they have and it actually is a disadvantage they end up having in the long run for a lack of experiences and exposure. But part of their privilege is they tend to not have to know people that don't look like them in order to succeed, in order to become educated, to secure living, in order to have, you know, any type of success in the world. And people of color pretty much have to know how to integrate and deal with everybody in order to matriculate, right? So where do white folks, as you just mentioned, the CEO or whoever, where do they get black folks from? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I mean, you know what I'm saying? If they've never been around black folks before, they've never had to be around black folks. They might know their driver. They might know the guy at the golf course. Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it might start with uh, any people of color that they might serve on a board with. That might be where they most they might most likely encounter people who don't look like them, who they might be most comfortable interacting with outside of the four walls of the boardroom. Uh, but, you know, sometimes uh, the experience, my experience can be at least that folks who know you in certain contexts absolutely don't recognize you in others. So mm-hmm. the black folk, the black folks you see at the board meeting, you see them out, you know, at a restaurant outside of that context and they don't know who that black person is because right. it's not a familiar context. And right. like getting to know and knowing black people regardless of context so that, you know, you see me out in whatever setting, oh, that face is, I, I know that's not just some black person who I'm going to act like I don't see <laughs> and, and see through them. I know 
know that black person. Get get to know black, black people on that level so that you know them outside of the most familiar context that you deal with them in. Now, how, how, how that gets done, I don't know. Right. Now, you mentioned boards. So, you, like, you sit on several boards. Like, you, yes. you are, like, my most board of director trend. I know. What has been your experience when you're on these boards with these big corporations and nonprofits as a black person? I know part of your experience because I think about when you said as a young person, you didn't feel like you had your voice. I know you have been actively trying to shake some of those trees on some of those boards you sit on. What has been the response and reaction? And do you feel like that's why you are there? Or do you feel more emboldened now that that is why you are there to speak up and say, hey, we, we need to do things a little differently? So I certainly feel more emboldened. And that that metamorphosis occurred for me after George Floyd. Mm-hmm. I told myself that um, I, I, you know, any space in which I occupy, any space in which I occupy space, whether that's as an employee or as a board member, whatever that space looks like, um, I can no longer remain silent about my experiences. And, you know, there's, the, if I'm being candid, there's been a mixed reaction to that, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like you when you were a little bit more quiet. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, some, some of the, I think some of the rub has been that uh, what I have observed generally is that there are issues that boards can be made aware of, uh, but they don't act on. And then something happens and it's like, we have to act on. And so what I have observed is boards generally uh, becoming much more invested in being diverse since George Floyd died. Right. And so if you've been the vocal black board member um, raising the, the diversity concern prior to George Floyd, and then it happens and you see a proliferation of black board members being added, and you're, you're like glad they're being added, but it's also kind of frustrating that it took that circumstance to, to for that to prompt the action rather than your word and advice prior to George Floyd that there needed to be more of an emphasis on those things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think there are, I think there are in the context of boards at least, I think that there are, that folks say that they want to uh, improve and show a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, yet and still when you kind of show the faults and the cracks in the in the plan, uh, there's still resistance to it. Uh, and yeah. so, it, you know, it, it does, it does um, leave me in a place of deciding um, how much of that I want to tolerate. Right. Uh, and, you know, do, do I need to be the voice for every issue related to Black folks? Right. It's a, it's should a, it's I, a, should I have to carry that? Should I have right. to carry that? It's a that? burden we all carry. And it's like, okay, it's part of, part of our responsibility as the Black person in the room to say, hey guys, that ain't going to work. But then also you get tired of always having to point out what should be obvious to adult humans. But what's interesting is it becomes this thing of like, um, uh, it's like you never buy me flowers and then you buy me flowers. I'm like, you only bought them because I told you to. <laughs> No, it's like this feeling of we're speaking mm-hmm. up and saying you need to do X, Y, Z, but when they do it, it still feels very performative. It, it still, still feels, it feels, like- it feels, it feels like precisely that and not authentic at all. And thus not sustainable because mm-hmm. as soon as the wave of, of guilt or whatever's driving the performance passes, the reversion back to default will occur. Mm-hmm. And so I am very much interested in seeing not just where boards go, but where or- organizations go, where will they be a year from now around these issues, you know, mm-hmm. especially in a year where we're coming back into another political election cycle. Like the 22 election cycle will be fascinating to watch. Put your money where your mouth is, show and prove all of those kind of right. <laughs> um, sayings or whatever. We're going to soon see, uh, you know, how sustainable, how committed these companies are, these and these nonprofits are to these notions of equity that they've been espousing for 
the last 11 months. Okay, so when you talk about 2022 and we talk about, especially with Georgia, do you think more states are going to follow Georgia's lead in just making up stuff to try to keep people from voting? I mean, Georgia obviously took the brunt of a lot of the national attention and being flipped blue and, and you know, that just ain't going to work around here. Okay, so it's not addressing voter fraud. It's activating voter suppression. Do and, But they're also starting to see the fallout from that, the corporate fallout yeah. from it, the, losing the dollars. Do you think states that flipped or states that are historically red are going to follow Georgia's lead for more voter suppression on the books? Or do you think they're going to say, hey, we don't want to get into that space and, and we're going to be fighting the, the right fight? I think I think it'll be a mixed bag. I think, you you know, it seems as though just preliminarily you have certain red states that are that are uh, that that could have some blue tendencies, Texas in particular. Um, you've seen them kind of double down on like we're for, here for the voter suppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I recall, last week um, during opening uh, opening of the baseball season, the governor of Texas refused to throw out the first pitch at was it the Rangers game uh, because he was protesting MLB. And so yes, MLB took because the MLB took the All Star game from Atlanta as a result of the voter the voting <laughs> the voting rights measure that was passed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so you know I think some states will back back off. I think others will again double down. I think I saw just recently where they're like between 43 states, there are 250 bills in consideration that uh, involve a retreating of voting rights. Mm. Uh, and, and some of them, ha- I mean, and some of them are in states like California that'll, you know, those aren't going to pass, but, but some component of the assembly in, in California is pursuing that. Right. Um, so no, I don't think, you know, I think it'll be again, a mixed bag of, you know, uh, and the, the states that, ca- that feel like they can kind of stand on their own may continue to resist. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, is it the Texas the 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 tech is it the chair of the the Republican Party in in Texas threatened succession the other day? Oh, uh, uh, pick one, pick yeah. one. But but this is what I was going to say about that. When people say things like that, or even with the uh, general election, um, knowing that someone lost the election, people now are so attached to their own political aspirations, they will go along with a lie just because it will get them votes in the future, or they will write uh, a bill that's not going to get passed, but they can say, oh, but. I I but I, I rocked with it, right? I went no. with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it's not even so much about constituents or, or representing the majority of people who are voting. It's just about their own um, singular political um, aspirations, I guess, and where they want to position themselves. I want to ask you, when we talked about a lot of things as far as the historical nature of America and how we repeat these cycles, and if, if it's so much, you know, they say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. But most of us Black folks, we know it, and we still see it being repeated time and time again. What can we do as Black folks in America to be the change? We like to leave each episode with an action item for our listeners. You know, sometimes it feels overwhelming. Like we said, sometimes it feels like, do I have to pick up and take on this burden? But what is something someone can do right now to hashtag be the change? Well, I think, you know, fundamentally, and this is just, this applies just across the board, always be willing to like interrogate and search for deeper context for current situations. And so we're we're in the time in which voting rights has research, has has um, come on like gangbusters again as like the, the the critical civil rights issue of our times in a way that hadn't been a part of the conversation in almost 60 years. Um, and in exploring what happened in the past, you can often find the path and some answers and some guidance and instruction on what you might need to do, what you might be able to do to help in the current circumstance. I mean, the first thing that everybody should do is go register to vote if you haven't already. 
and uh, understand as well that uh, if, if, if the last election didn't underscore this, then then we're in trouble. Local and state elections matter just as much as federal ones. Right. Who you have as your sheriff, who you have as your mayor, who you have on your county commission, all those offices matter. And so staying informed and in the loop on local politics is very key. But primarily interrogate the current, you know, the, the history that may inform your current situation and mm-hmm. use that to kind of, as a guidepost for uh, how you might uh, become a part of the solution. I love that. And as much as folks don't know the information, the information is there. There's this Google machine. There's this wonderful and- thing called the Googles. <laughs> and I tell you, it, it, it gives you actual information. And so when you hear something, you say, well, I don't know that or I didn't know that. It's like you can actually give yourself that context and, and from more than one source. It's, it's really interesting what they've been able to do with technology on Al Gore's it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> but I'm also still impressed by the fax machine. Uh, Michelle Clement, I so appreciate you taking some time out to join us here on the History of Being Black. Like I said, I've counted you as a friend for many years, more impressive friends, you know, so I always like to, you know, claim you. And even when you mentioned um, about your dad studying history at Miles, our parents went to Miles yes. College. Yes, so they did. We knew each other before. We, we, were we knew more. each other before. That's right. <laughs> so that's really cool in uh, how the world just keeps going on. But thank you so much for being a friend of the podcast. Hopefully you'll come back and talk to us again soon. Uh, thank to. you all for listening to the history of being black. Make sure you use the hashtag be the change and make sure you be the change. And don't forget to join us on the next episode of the history of being black. The history of being black podcast is hosted and produced by Unicelli. Associate producer, Lauren Turner, edited by Ken Johnson. Executive producers, Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcast. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion and say it loud network production. <laughs>